Our first reading from Exodus 12, verse 1 to 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. The second reading this morning is from Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 7. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity as was one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that we made whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. 
Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And now reading from the New Testament, John 1, verses 29 to 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched, Jesus walked by. He exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I wonder, when you were very young, were you afraid of monsters? It seems to be a fairly universal experience of childhood that we fear the unknown and fill it with monsters of our own imagining. From the void under the bed to the dark of the wardrobe, the lurking spiders of the dark 
have the capacity to assume monstrous and threatening proportions in our minds as we place onto them our worst fears and our darkest dreams. And let us not kid ourselves for even a moment that the inner world of a child is all innocence and light. I can remember, even at a very young age, finding within myself the capacity to explore very dark thoughts and emotions. And I assume that I'm not alone in this. What is significant, of course, is how a child learns to process and cope with their developing sense of themselves. What we do with our inner monsters is a key question of the process of reaching maturity. And one of the things we do is to take those inner demons and externalize them, to get them out of ourselves. And then we try to find ways of appeasing their gnawing appetites. And so I remember that when I was very young, I had a teddy bear that I loved very much. And I would dangle him over the edge of my bed so that he could see into the fearsome and unplumbed depths beneath me and face the creatures that lived there on my behalf. I used to promise him that I would never let him go, that he was safe as long as I was holding his hand. But I also took comfort in knowing that if anything happened to him, or if the fear just got too much for me and my grip faltered, I could quickly withdraw my hand back to safety, leaving him as a sacrifice to the dark to be collected in the morning if he survived the night down there alone. The question I have revisiting these memories from my childhood is who or what is the real monster here and who or what is the sacrifice that is being offered and so to john's gospel and our lectionary reading for this morning the next day john saw jesus coming toward him and declared here is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world And I find myself wondering what we mean when we speak of Jesus as the Lamb of God. What did John the Baptist mean when he greeted Jesus in this way? And what did John, the author of the fourth gospel, mean by repeating it here at the start of Jesus' public ministry? The background to the phrase Lamb of God is well known, and it finds its origin in the two Old Testament passages that Graham read for us earlier in the service. The first of these is the story of the institution of the Passover set in the time of Israelite slavery in Egypt. Moses had been unsuccessful in persuading the Pharaoh to release his people. Despite the devastation of the nine plagues that had already happened, Pharaoh's heart remained hard and set on slavery. 
the final plague to visit the Egyptians was that of the death of the firstborn, with the citizens of ancient Egypt bearing the horrific cost of their leader's dedication to domination. But the Israelites were spared the angel of death because they obeyed the instruction to kill a lamb without blemish and to mark their doorposts with its blood so that the curse of death would pass over their houses. And it's clear that the author of John's Gospel has this festival of Passover very much in mind as he tells the story of Jesus. Because unlike the other Gospels, we find that John's Gospel gives us three specific mentions of the Passover. Chapter 2 and chapter 6 and chapter 13, if you want to look them up. This is why in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' ministry appears to take place over one year, but in John's Gospel, because of the three mentions of the annual Passover, it looks like it takes three years. John also sets the events of the crucifixion, taking place over the third of these Passovers in the Gospel. And he actually has the Passover celebrated on the day following the death of Jesus. The Gospel writer whoever he was, clearly wants his readers to understand that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Here is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' death functions by this reading to bring release from the empire of domination that, like the Egyptian pharaoh of old, still holds people in perpetual captivity. But still, what what kind of a lamb is this? What kind of sacrifice is being offered here? And so we must turn our attention to the second scripture passage that lies behind the acclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And we turn to the suffering servant passage from Isaiah. This is a text which, like the Passover story, also finds its origin in a time of imperial oppression. These words from Isaiah were originally offered to the Jews in exile in Babylon. And they gave the people of God a way of understanding their present sufferings in exile in the context of God's activity for the release of all who live in slavery and oppression. As the sins of the Pharaoh caused suffering for the many, so the sins of the many cause the suffering of the one, who, Isaiah says, goes to his death, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. However Isaiah's words were understood by those who first heard them, John's gospel is quite clear that Jesus is to be understood as the Lamb of God who goes to his death because of the sins of the many. To secure the release of the many from the dominating powers of sin and death. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But even if we're clear that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, we still haven't resolved our question of why this sacrifice is being demanded. By whom and on what basis? 
And here I'd like to return to my childhood for a moment again and think about the human experience of how we deal with our monstrous desires. There is a way of understanding the death of Jesus where God is like a small child perched up on high, safe from the monsters that live below dangling his dearly beloved son over the precipice and then letting go as an offering to assuage the appetites of the monsters that would otherwise devour the cosmos and all who live there. Or to put this perspective another way, God is in his heaven, but the wages of sin demand a sacrifice unto death. Someone has to pay that bill, so Jesus pays it and the rest of us get off scot-free. Many of us will have heard this or something very similar to it before. It is, in essence, the standard evangelical understanding of the death of Jesus as the one who pays the price for our sins so we don't have to. Sometimes it even comes with diagrams so that it can be more easily explained to those whose sins have not yet been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, which apparently, according to the book of Revelation, washes whiter than white. If you don't believe me, look up chapter 7, verse 14. However, I have something of a problem with this way of seeing things. Because the more I think about it, the more it seems to me that in this scenario, the monsters are not dwelling on the earth. They're not even hiding under the bed. The monster here is God. This is a monstrous view of God who tosses his son to feed the encircling wolves of sin and death. Just as the monsters under my bed as a child existed in reality, of course, only in my own head, so it is with God if we fashion him as a divine child on high, projecting his own needs and insecurities onto his creation by destroying his own beloved son to appease these demons of his own creating. No, in the final analysis, I reject this understanding of the death of Jesus as an immature projection by humans in which we create God in our own image and then endow him with our own sinful characteristics. It seems to me that for any understanding of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb to be genuinely transformative of our human experience it must begin with an understanding of God as love. If God is not love, and love unrestricted and freely given, then I would suggest that God is not God. If God is violent, vengeful, cowardly, remote, or judgmental, then God is nothing more than a projection of our own psychological traumas. For God to be God, God must be love. And therefore, God's saving action in Christ must be an act of love and not violence. So here's a thought. What if it's not God who demands the sacrifice? What if the sacrifice of the Lamb is not required by some immutable laws which God grandly wrote into the universe, but which now not even he has the power to overrule? What if the monsters baying for blood 
are not projections of the tortured mind of God. What if the monsters are really me and you? What if the sacrificial monster demanding a sacrifice to expunge its guilt is humanity itself? This, I would suggest, changes everything. By this understanding, the death of Jesus is not about paying some cosmic debt, but rather is about exposing the sacrificial predilections that lie deep within each of us as we cast about for someone to rid us of the guilt of our own darkest fears and desires. By this reading, Jesus is the one who carries our infirmities, bears our desires, He is wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And by his bruises, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lamb of God comes from the Father and returns to the Father, that we may be freed from the burden of our fallen humanity. This is not God casting our sins on Jesus as an act of divine violence against an innocent victim. Rather, this is God entering into the depths of human depravity to expose to the light of his truth our capacity to inflict violence on one another in our quest for personal or communal justification. This is the act of a God of love who so deeply loves humanity that he is willing to take into himself the worst we can do to another in order that our desires for a violent solution to our plight may be deconstructed. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, is not some spotless lamb of perfected humanity given to appease a vengeful God but the Lamb of God, given to bring release to human communities locked into cycles of scapegoating. And I would add, the world has never needed the Lamb of God more than it does at the moment. We are locked into global cycles of violent scapegoating where the other is continually and creatively held accountable for the sins of the many in order that the many might feel some brief glimmer of self-justification. The sins of the world are many and grievous as we victimize the powerless and systemically extinguish empathy for the other. It happens on all sides, and there's no way out without an intervention to unmask the darkness that lies within each of us. The world needs those who will join with John the Baptist in heralding another way. It needs those who will cry to a world of sin, look, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world needs to hear the story and see the brutal reality of the Lamb of God sent to his death by human hands. Because without this unmasking of our sins, 
we continue to misrepresent the victim as the enemy. And the spirals of sin and death continue unabated. And this task of proclaiming the Lamb of God to the world begins with and within each of us. If it is not true for me and for you, then we have nothing to say to others because we ourselves are still trapped by our own monsters, unable to step down from the safety of our beds, forever retreating into our own comfort zones, and all the while scapegoating those who we deem expendable, requiring others to pay the price for our own sins. We have to grow up, and we have to grow into Christ. We have to learn to see Christ in the other and to recognize the monsters in ourselves, rather than seeing Christ in ourselves and monsters in others. We need the Lamb of God to take away our sins. And so we need the Spirit of Christ to remain within us that we may remain within God. And I wonder what might this mean in practice? What does it mean for us to recognize in ourselves our capacity to deny our own inner darkness by demonizing others? I think it starts with self-knowledge, with us learning to have the courage to stare into the darkness within and to recognize our fallen state for what it is. For me, a little while ago, this meant a year of psychotherapy as I exercised certain ghosts that had been haunting me for most of my adult life. It was Socrates who famously declared that the unexamined life was not worth living. But of course, merely learning to face the darkness is only the first step of the process. Because to truly abide in Christ, the Lamb of God, is a process of surrendering to love and of letting go of our driving sense of self. It is allowing him to take from us the hatred and bitterness and pain and guilt that define our lives and our relationships. It is becoming vulnerable to the ultimate other who comes to us in love and offers us release and forgiveness. And this means becoming vulnerable to one another as we surrender ourselves to the body of Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world.